This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Of course, all of our eyes are on Uber this week. We were off 18% in the first two days of trading. Seen a little bit of some stabilization today. And joining me today in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio is Lizzie Fournier. She's our managing editor of our U.S. deals team. And Snolly Bosek, our investment banking reporter. And Snolly, you know, I wanted to talk to you because you wrote a great story. And it felt like it was not Uber versus Morgan Stanley. Uber's thrilled, pricing at $45 a share. It's now Morgan Stanley versus these investors who in many cases are holding some pretty large losses. And investors of all type, that's absolutely right. Uber still raised more than $8 billion, and they didn't cast any blame on Morgan Stanley. But what it is, is there's a lot of investors who did lose a lot of money. These are investors that bought into the IPO at $45 a share, and IPO, people, investors that were even earlier investors, such as, you know, think about their own employees. And, and a lot of Morgan Stanley's own high net worth clients that bought in at $48 a share in the 2016 fundraising. And so, Lizzie, come on in here, because what's so interesting about this in part is bankers are like beating the heck out of each other to try and get these mandates, you know, to prove that, you know, they're the guys and they're usually guys who, you know, can get the right price, can get the right investors and do all this. This feels like kind of an epic fail what really went wrong here well i think what you always want to see in these situations is the right size pop at the open and that's right. a really hard number to define everyone has a different idea of what it is different people with you know stakes in the deal have have very different ideas of what that should be but the the idea is you want about sort of 10 to 20 percent on that first day to show that there's strong demand out there and then you want it to be pretty stable after that that's not what happened here and there's you know a hundred different things that could have gone wrong throughout the process you know were were price expectations too high were the uber executives sort of listening to advice was the advice being given you know a little bit too high of a price uh for what investors eventually wanted were the people who said that they were going to stick around for the long term actually telling the truth here or did they decide to sort of flip on day one so there's there's lots of sort of moving parts here that make it a very difficult job for the underwriters but that's for sure where the blame tends to fall well, and Shanali, not to be too cynical, but this is why they get paid a lot of money is to, to get this right. So you're so well-sourced within that bank and, and the banks around town. How much schadenfreude is there going around? What are the bankers inside Morgan Stanley telling you? Well, Morgan Stanley itself, right? I mean, they declined to comment for the story. But what our sources say is that, you know, they're pretty happy with how this went. But, you know, a lot of this is about the market. I was there on Friday morning, for example, and I was there watching the price rise until all of a sudden the market turned and so did Uber stock right before it opened. And once sentiment was lost, the risk off appetite took off and it lasted a couple of days. And so the question here is, is Morgan Stanley facing another reputational moment like it did with the Facebook, like it did with Google, with IPOs that didn't go that well. But, you know, in the long term, those companies did quite well. And and is Uber going to be one of those companies or not? Well, Lizzie, Schnally mentioned the reputational aspect of this. And I wonder, 
What does Morgan Stanley or really any banker in this situation do when they have to go back in the next IPO, whether it be a year from now, six months from now, five years from now, and sort of tap those relationships again and go to those investors? What do they say? Well, like you said, you know, people have long memories when it comes to these things. We're talking about Facebook, which was you know over five years ago, and Google, which was even longer ago. So these things do tend to stick around. At the same time, there's a small handful of really sort of top tier banks that handle these kind of things. If you look at the sort of main people lining up on big tech listings, it's Morgan Stanley, it's Goldman Sachs, sometimes JP Morgan. So they are the people with the most experience and they can kind of bring that to the table. And again, if we're talking about Facebook and Google, those companies are not failures now. Like Sometimes it takes a while for things to to get off the ground. It's not always the case. Snap is a sort of notable exception to that rule. But, you know, three days in with Uber, it's maybe a little too soon to tell what's going to happen next. And Shanali, in this sort of situation, do the rival bankers make hay of this? Do you feel like they're sending texts and emails and making phone calls and chatting about this over drinks? Being like, I don't know what happened with these guys, but, you know... Listen, this business is a lobbying business. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's definitely um, the case that's happening because, you know, there are a lot of new high profile IPOs that are that could be right around the corner. Right. Some of them already have banks like Slack, which is a direct listing. But some of them, you know, WeWork is still on the table. For example, they haven't named their banks from what I remember. Right, Lizzie? Yeah, that's right. So. I have a question, and I'm curious about how long the underwriter has to stay in and prop up the stock, because we know that one measure of being successful is having them come in, make sure you do get a pop on the next few days. At what point is this no longer Morgan Stanley's responsibility, if they can pull out and no longer sort of uh, reputationally or mandated to prop up the stock? Well, it kind of already isn't in the sense that they already handled IPO, but the thing is they have 30 days um, for their over-allotment uh, period to keep the stock stable. Um, another interesting kind of player in the game here is Citadel Securities, which is the designated market maker for Uber, who will be the designated market for the, for the lifetime of the company. And so yeah, those are some of the people that will be responsible for the company's future, but really it's about Uber and its own performance. Shanali Basik is Bloomberg News investment banking reporter covering all things Wall Street. And Lizzie Fournier is Bloomberg News deals managing editor overseeing all the deal making, the IPOs, all that coverage. It's been a hot area for sure. It always is. We'll keep an eye on Uber as the trade goes on. As Taylor said, a bit of a stabilization trade here, maybe getting a little bit of the updraft from the broader market, right? Yeah, well, and I really like the comments about how it was sort of Uber versus the investors right now, and that Uber, or sorry, Morgan Stanley versus the investors, and yeah. that Uber really uh, is doing okay, at least at the issuance. But of course, now all eyes turn to that secondary market, and right. at least today, a little bit of some stabilization. My mama told me. All right, so we continue to look at this trade dispute between the U.S. and China from all different angles, and investors continuing to try and make sense of what is an ongoing issue, Taylor, and seems to have no real end in sight other than the two sides are going to keep talking. So let's get into it. Kevin Carter is the founder of EMQQ. It's an emerging markets internet and e-commerce ETF. And Kevin, you join us on the phone from San Francisco. Help us understand where the rubber is meeting the road when it comes to emerging markets broadly with this trade dispute backdrop. 
Well, the trade war has obviously rattled the market. Um, uh, it rattled emerging markets uh, as an asset class uh, pretty much all of last calendar year uh, as the, uh, the broader indexes declined 15% and uh, some of the more narrow indexes even more. Um, so people are concerned, I think right, uh, rightly so, uh, and it's happening. I mean, the trade war is actually happening, and uh, you know, your lead-in music was uh, cute because uh, you know, it, essentially everything at Target's going to be going up, uh, you know, uh, in price. Yeah. You know, Kevin, it's very interesting. When I take a look at some of the holdings within EMQQ, looks very Chinese-focused. Tencent, Alibaba, JD, Baidu sort of all of these tech uh, companies over in China that we know. But we know recently Chinese tech sector has been bearing the brunt really of this trade fight and, and underperforming even the U.S. tech sector. Does anything that's going on in the last few days make you rethink any of the top holdings within that ETF? Or can you stick to your guns and maintain that long-term Tencent, Alibaba can get through this unscathed? Well, EMQQ owns all emerging market uh, internet companies, and it does happen that China has the biggest and the most uh, of those companies because they have the largest population in the world and they have the largest smartphone population in the world. So, so you're right, there is a, a large uh, exposure to China. Uh, but the, the same thing that's happening in China, i.e., you know, consumers getting uh, their first computer in the form of a smartphone and, and getting internet access. Uh, it's happening everywhere. It's happening in India. It's happening in Africa. It's happening in South America. And, and that's what the EMQQ story is about. In terms of uh, the Chinese names, and you mentioned Alibaba and Tencent, those are uh, usually our two largest holdings. Um, you know, the, the trade war is about corn and agricultural products and manufactured goods. It's, it's the legacy parts uh, of the Chinese economy that, that are likely to be affected. Um, the, you know, the, the EMQQ story, uh, the Alibaba story, the Tencent story, this is about people in China um, moving on up, you know, it, it becoming consumers. And as they move on up, they want more and better stuff, food, clothing, appliances, vacations, and, you know, college educations for the kids. So uh, that's not likely to be affected by the trade war. I mean, the, the uh, you know, Alibaba is people in China buying uh, you know, consumer goods, it's buying, uh, using their phones to pay for things. Um, it's using their phone to watch movies. Uh, it's not the, the type of stuff that's going to be affected by the trade war. But as you pointed out, it hasn't uh, helped with uh, sentiment. And it, indeed, uh, you know, the stocks have, have had a bad, uh, you know, call it uh, 18 months. And so it- on the eve of uh, Alibaba coming out with earnings, talk to us about what we can expect from them, given some of these headwinds, crosswinds, however you want to refer to them. What are we expecting to hear? Because they are such a bellwether, as you've pointed out. Well, I think what you're going to hear about is growth. I mean, this, yeah. you know, the, 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 this is one of the largest companies in the world, and it's, uh, I think its last quarter was approximately 40% revenue growth. And uh, I'm uh, confident the, the number will be uh, 30-something percent this quarter. So, you know, th- that's hard to do. I mean, there are very few companies in the world of any size that wouldn't uh, envy uh, 30 and 40 percent top-line growth numbers. So I think that, that the report, you know, will, will continue to show very strong growth. And what you're seeing uh, in 
uh, in the case of, of Alibaba and Tencent is uh, that, you know, we describe Tencent, for example, as the Facebook of China. But you can't really call Facebook the Tencent of the United States because in addition to being the, the largest social network, it's also, uh, you know, almost half of the digital payments market. So Facebook would be the Tencent of the United States if half the people in Starbucks uh, used uh, Facebook to buy their coffee. So right. you're going to continue to see growth in the digitization of the entire Chinese economy, and financial services uh, certainly will be a big part of that, continues to be a big part of right. that. Uh, and then you'll also, you know, the, the cloud services business, which had been growing at 100% yeah. uh, uh, up until last quarter, when it, you know, it, uh, its growth rate uh, slowed down, uh, if you will, to, to yeah. something like 90%. So Great to talk to you as always. Kevin Carter, founder of EMQQ, joining us from San Francisco. What doesn't kill you makes you Jason, this is actually on my running playlist, that song. How fitting. I love it. So we're doing all fitness today. Chris knew that I was uh, training for my 11th marathon, so he decided to come in and wow, get me into flex. shape for this one. So we have Chris Rondo, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Planet Fitness. It's so awesome to have you here for having me. in our studios. I first want to start with your story. What differentiates Planet Fitness? Why would I want to join Planet Fitness over, really, a dozen other competitors here in New York? Sure, absolutely. It's a good question. I get that a lot. And first, from the outside looking in, you say, well, it's super affordable, $10 a month. Even here in Manhattan, it's 10 bucks a month. We're 10 bucks a month nationwide for a membership. But honestly, it's our atmosphere component that really makes our model work. And if you look at today, 20% of the U.S. population has a gym membership. That's it. And the rest of the industry is really fighting after the same 20%. So you can't see membership at Orange Theory. You go to Equinox, Equinox, then you go to SoulCycle. you got to bounce around. Mm. With our members, we're going after the 80%. We're going after the people that have either never worked out before or maybe haven't done it in 10 or 20 years. And they want to give it a shot. So we take out all the intimidation. So if you're coming in, it's that old saying, I've got to get in shape before I join a gym. We're the answer to that. And almost 40% of our members never belong to a gym in their life. And so, Chris, how do you hang on to them? Because how do you keep them in a way that they don't sort of walk in, get fit, and then they're like, well, maybe maybe now I'm going to Equinox because it's, you know, got all the bells and whistles and the Kiehl's products and the locker rooms <laughs> and all that. What, what's your, what's your uh, strategy there? So, yeah, first I'd say we give, we give a great product. So our clubs, we have the same treadmill you'll find in most $200-a-month clubs, believe it or not. A lot of value, 20,000 square feet, beautiful tile locker rooms, granite countertops. So we give a lot of value. I like to say I built a $50-a-month club. I just charge $10 a month for it. But honestly, when people leave us, unfortunately, they leave for the coach. It's because uh-huh. of non-use. Mm-hmm. So they don't really necessarily graduate up. They fall off the wagon. They get busy. They have kids. They fall off, you know, off the normal routine, and we just want them back. So we make cancellation very easy in our gyms. We say, I probably say we have the easiest cancellation policy because we just want them back when they come back on, on the wagon. And, and honestly, today our, we have 13.6 million members. 20% of those have been members at least one time in their past. Well, part of your story as well is the growing up population, these millennials. One of your strategies is looking at the teen summer challenge. And uh, Jason, I was reading an analyst note from Piper Jaffray. They have an overweight on the stock, a price target of about 84. They put out this note a few weeks ago that they really did cite this teen summer challenge, which offers teens a free summer membership as really a great long-term marketing tool. And then I would argue mm-hmm. a great way to start to hook them early, <laughs> get them into the gym to become lifelong members. Sure. You know, first and foremost, it's the right thing to do. 
and look at, you know, build self-confidence, self-esteem. We look at a lot of bullying that you see on TV today, unfortunately, and also introduce them to wellness and fitness, you know. Today we have 13.6 million members, almost half are millennial. And we developed this business in the 90s. They were barely being born. Now they make up half our members. And millennials are reported to be more physically active than millennials, the Gen Z population or others. So we look at the Gen Z population. They're just turning 21 today. So the propensity to join is really starting to happen. So if we can get ahead of that and introduce them to the brand early, which is why the Summer Teen Challenge, we did it last year in New Hampshire. We're rolling it out nationwide this year. All high school teens, 15 to 18, work out for free, no strings attached all summer. Um, just parents come in, sign them up, get them in the, in the gym. We'll teach them how to work out. We'll give them uh, all the instruction, no, no, uh, no charge for that. And hopefully long-term, it introduces them to fitness. So, Chris, I'm actually out in Los Angeles because I was spending some time today at the Imperial Capital Consumer Summit. A lot of fitness brands there and a lot of talk around the at-home experience, the multimedia experience. You know, Peloton obviously has led the way, but you also have Tonal, you have Mirror, you have various people coming up with these apps that are really rich in content. How does that figure into both the competitive set for you and maybe some of your plans going forward? Yeah, I say first, I love the exposure to fitness, just for the industry. Between the apps, the wearables, it goes on and on. You can't get away from it, which I think is why you see the millennial population working out, the Z population more active. So I think it's all good for the industry. Um, when you look at, especially like the Mirror Peloton, it's expensive. It's yeah. pricey. It's not you know, we're $10 a month. It's a mm-hmm. big difference for that. But um, I think at-home fitness, and it's been around forever, whether it was Billy Blanks with Tybo in the 90s right. or it was, it was P90X, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Beachbody, yeah, all of it, right? Yeah, so I think it's a great um, supplement but I really think the bricks and mortar experience, you know, the variety of equipment changes, you know, you can always use different workouts. I think that being around other people, I think is motivating. It's also, when you think about our lives today, you know, you're, you're, you're never even on the phone anymore. You're all text and email. Mm-hmm. Human exposure is great. You get out, out, out of your house. And I think it's a great supplement for the bricks and mortar, but I don't think it's really the end all be all. So, Chris, when you talk about – sorry. When you talk about bricks and mortar, I wanted to ask you about Kohl's because that's a relationship that you have cultivated. Help us understand how that works because, again, that's a sort of physical uh, space component, it feels like, to the business. Yeah, it's been – the retail landscape for us has been – been really great. If you go back, you know, ten plus years ago, the gyms were like didn't want, never wanted us. <laughs> now they're like they want to drive traffic. We do about yeah. five thousand workouts a week per center, and most of our traffic is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And weekends were quiet when the retailers are busy, so it's a great compliment. Um, so Coles did most of your tra- hold on. I, most of your traffic is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Really? Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, Monday's our busiest day. They've had a rough weekend, Jason. You <laughs> get back the pizza, in there, watching the football or whatever you're doing. And Mondays, we'll do a Monday traffic will be three times what a Friday or Saturday is. Three times. Um, so, yeah, Kohl's saw that opportunity, and uh, they right-sized some of their stores. We're going to do 10 this year um, with plans, hopefully, to do more, where they're giving us 20,000 square feet with our own storefront right next door to them. Um, and just recently, we just launched a, a, a test with them. We're actually um, offering a 25% discount to our members, uh, 3 million of our members, to go ahead and buy product at Kohl's stores and in return a corporate membership for their customers as well. So um, it's more than just retail uh, real estate. It's actually just even partnerships. So it's, um, it's a good, good, uh, good partnership so far. A few weeks ago on your earnings call, you reiterated your full-year guidance. Uh, we're looking at double-digit top-line revenue growth, though expected to slow a little bit year-over-year year in 2019. Net income, bottom-line earnings per share growth, still good, double digits. What's your one key concern that keeps you up at night? Um, I'd say answer it usually the same way, and it's staying disciplined to who we are. 
as our as our product. And you know, if you look at all the industry and all the fads that come and go, mm-hmm. it's saying it's really it's really true who our customer is, and not gravitate back to the industry. And um, it, it's it's been been really good at it for the last twenty plus years. Did not you know follow the footsteps of what the industry does, but really stay dedicated to our brand. Um, you know, real estate's going to get better, I think, for us over the next five years. I don't think it's going to get worse, that's for sure, with all the retail compression. Um, so I think it's just, we're just in a perfect flywheel effect right now with this business, and it just, it's just churning away in this marketing machine I always say we have, where every incremental member every day, 9% of their monthly dues goes back into marketing to fuel tomorrow's member. And today we've got 13 million members, and the IPO was less than four years ago. We only had 7 million. That's amazing. Well, it's an amazing uh, growth story, and you look at the chart on the terminal, Taylor, and it is uh, up and to the right for sure. Uh, Chris Rondo, he is the chief executive officer of Planet Fitness, based in Hampton, New Hampshire, with us in New York today, ringing the opening bell tomorrow on the New York Stock Exchange. Jason, we have to get back to the gym. We have to get back to the gym? (laughs) Or I have to get back to the gym? You have to get back to the gym. Yeah, because you've already flexed about your 11th marathon coming up, so I feel like you're just judging me. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, it's time now for Business Week Economics. And, you know, Taylor, I thought I was a big man, you know, coming to Los Angeles. And then Kathleen Hayes is like, oh, cool, Los Angeles. I'm going to Zurich. And I'm going to have an exclusive interview with New York Fed President John Williams over there. They talked about so many different things. Kathleen joins us from Zurich. Carl Riccadonna, he's back home in New York. But, KH, got to start with you. Great interview. What'd you hear? Well, first of all, before I jump into that, I just have to say, you know, give my respect and fondness for Alice Rivlin. I think she's one of the great Fed officials of all time. And I just and found in the Congressional Budget Office, I think she's the kind of person, seriously, who inspires people like John Williams and people at the mm-hmm. Fed now. We can disagree with what they do, but they're all trying to make sure they keep things on track. What I heard from John Williams is this steadfast view, okay, we've got risks from trade, okay, inflation's below target, but I still think the economy looks pretty good, and gosh darn it, that's the view at, at the from the number three guy at the Fed, and until something comes out to the contrary, even though he acknowledges the downside risks and upside risks of trade, steady as she goes, doors not opening to cuts, and doors not opening to hikes. I do think of uh, the tariffs as, in a way, is is like a, supl- a negative supply shock, and so it has various effects in the economy. One is it affects inflation; it probably will boost inflation by a few tenths uh, over the next year. It affects uh, demand and, and growth a bit in the short run, but it also has negative effects on the on the uh, kind of the value chains and in, in how our uh, our economic system works. The mantra for John Williams and others on the Fed right now, the economy's in a good place. That has not changed in his mind. What about financial market volatility, President Williams? It's a factor, but you know what? It's not the main factor. We're watching it. Uh, So that's what really struck me. No matter how hard I tried, I think John Williams made it pretty clear that's his view and it hasn't changed yet. Well, Kathleen, that interview was great, and I want to pull in Carl Riccadonna here, who's sitting next to me at our uh, Bloomberg Interactive Studio headquarters. And, Carl, I wanted to get your take on the reaction from John Williams about inflation and the tariffs, because there has been a lot of conversation in recent days about how tariffs would actually boost inflation, which arguably inflation's been low, we need it. But does that count? Is that the right kind of inflation? No, it's 
not the right kind of inflation, and that's a very important uh, distinction to uh, make. Uh, We want inflation to be the result of an economy that's uh, humming along above its trend pace, creating uh, wage pressures uh, and and that sort of thing. We don't want a supply shock, uh, no more than we would like to see inflation as a result of some kind of spike in oil prices. Uh, The Fed's going to look at uh, tariff pass-through to inflation in much the same way that it would uh, to that kind of uh, oil price uh, shock on uh, activity. And that's really maybe we'll give them a, a little bit of solace in terms of how households are uh, uh, reshaping their inflation expectations. But this really isn't uh, what they want to see. This is more of a stagflation type of inflation. And so, Kathleen, as you're talking to folks over there and you're talking to uh, President Williams, how does this trade backdrop play into the conversations or is it more of a wait and see type situation? Well, you know, I think it's I think it I think it's, it it plays into the conversations and it's a wait and see because yeah. we had uh, as Carl B. I'm, I'm quoting Carl Riccadonna here, one of my favorite economists, who points out so clearly last year the economy was shielded from the tariffs by the fact that they were narrower and more focused on production-type goods. This year they're broader. They hit consumers. China can't devalue its currency again. And another thing John Williams said about this is he views inflation more like it, it's like something's going to from tariffs just going to go through the economy. Yes, it will raise prices, but at some point you need. Know, that that impact is done. Inflation is a steady increase in prices. That will be done, and then you can look at what's going on. And I think, and I think, Carl, you tell us what you think, but I think that's how most everybody on the Fed is going to look at this. Absolutely, this is a, a short-term impact. Uh, and, and the Fed's right to say, well, we'll stand pat and see what happens, because really the second-order impacts are, are the second-order effects are what's going to uh, potentially sway policymakers. Things like uh, if we see a significant rout in the financial markets, which, sure, Friday was a lousy day, uh, but uh, we're already bouncing back today. And if we compare uh, what we've seen in response to the trade war compared to what we saw in Q4 of last year, uh, it really is just a, a molehill uh, next to uh, the mountain. Uh, if we saw a much more severe route uh, playing out uh, in the markets, then uh, the Fed would have to respond to it. Also, uh, tariffs are a friction on the system. So if it looks like there's going to be a, a material impact on uh, corporate profits or uh, corporate confidence in a way that uh, leads them to pull back on hiring, uh, then those kinds of impacts could actually have consequences that, that would matter to the Fed. Uh, in the meantime, they just sit back uh, confident that they're close to neutral on interest rates uh, and wait to see how this all plays out. Carl, are the markets wrongly pricing in a Fed rate cut? Why did we wake up yesterday and given all the volatility in the equity markets, all of a sudden bonds and options and futures want to think that the Fed is automatically going to cut rates? Well, we have a very flat yield curve, uh, depending uh, which uh, metrics you uh, pick. I I still like to look at uh, twos, tens on the Treasury curve, but some folks look at the uh, three-month bill uh, relative to 10-year yields and whatnot. And there's arguments to look at uh, various metrics. Uh, Nonetheless, it's very flat, and that tells us that uh, Fed policy has pretty much done just about enough for uh, economic fundamentals, uh, which means if there's a real change to the landscape, like a prolonged trade war, which has uh, significant negative economic effects, uh, then maybe the Fed would have to respond to that. And so, uh, they, you know, they've had it in their in their collective minds that uh, the Fed could be on the cusp of a uh, a cut. And then every time we see negative economic news, you see those odds uh, increase uh, just a little bit. That being said, I will still say that assuming we 
don't have a dramatic escalation of the trade war. Uh, we have a very low unemployment rate. Uh, it's going to move even lower still over the course of the year. It's generating wage pressures. I think that could still mean that the next move is going to be a rate increase. All right, Kathleen you heard Hayes, it here last first. word to you. Well, I think let's remember too, and and I think John Williams, uh, you know, we, we posted the entire interview on on Bloomberg dot com. So anybody who didn't catch it, I recommend you listen to it in its entirety, get past the headlines and what we've written up because I think it's a very rich interview. But uh, you know, he sees the Fed in the right place right now. I I specifically said, but you know, you you have opened the door to the next move being up or down. So what about the possibility of a rate cut? He just right. did not commit to that. He doesn't. Think, I think he's trying to say you're going to have to be data dependent, see what happens. The market sees it not only because of trade, but because inflation is so far below target. We haven't even talked about Esther George. We said, what do you mean? Right. Cut rates to boost inflation. That could cause bubbles and a recession. Kathleen Hayes joining us on the phone from Zurich. As she said, catch her exclusive interview with John Williams online at Bloomberg.com. Carl Roy Kadana, chief U.S. economist. Thanks to you as well. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. This is the drive to the close. It's my favorite part of the hour, Jason, because we have about seven minutes left. Oh, 12 minutes. I'm, I'm not good at math, apparently. 12 minutes left until... Can someone tell the CFA about this? <laughs> to learn how to count. Yeah. 12 minutes left until the opening bell, and like you said, sort of green on the The closing screen. bell. We call it the closing bell at Wow, uh, where is my head today? You know, I'm I don't exhausted. Know. You're just excited about cash. I am. You know, so actually this was... I'm on a very serious note, Jason. Yesterday we came in and it was a bloodbath. I mean, you had equities off 2 to 4%. And everyone's screaming, go to cash. We're panicking, go to cash. So, of course, today we have a wonderful Henley Smith. He's Senior Relationship Manager over at Stonecastle Cash Management. About $17 billion in assets under management. So I want to ask you first, how much of the panic was yesterday? Did it feel like October? Is everyone going to cash? Uh, no, that's been a process that's been happening for a while now. I think with the age of the cycle, uh, you know, it started last year. Cash was probably the number one asset allocation winner last year. So I think everyone's trying to figure out, you know, is that going to continue to be the case? But yeah, it, it happened last year. We saw a lot more allocations to cash institutionally, family offices and individuals. And I think it's, it's really paid off for them. And so, Henley, when you look at not just a day like yesterday, but sort of this trend toward worrying about global economics and specifically around trade, not really knowing how it's going to play through the markets. How does that play into the case you make uh, for cash? And also, how do people respond with that kind of backdrop? Well, I think it's been a little bit different. I mean, in years past, we were dealing with zero interest rates. So there was this sense that I can't stay in cash. Most of your advisors would say it's a wealth destroyer, get out of cash. And I think probably historically that's been the case. But now that we're dealing with rates at 2% plus, 240 on the product that we offer, 
you know, people can, you know, have a little bit of uh, comfort, flexibility, and, and kind of let this play out. So I don't think you have to be a hero here. I think you can let things play themselves out, give yourself a little bit market flexibility, earn a decent return in cash, and, uh, you know, live to fight another day. That's a very Don't be a hero, Taylor. Just well, don't be a hero. This <laughs> is such a good point that really for the first time in a decade, you're actually getting a product that's outperforming cash on an inflation-adjusted basis. Yeah, absolutely. You got a real return on it. Uh, and again, it, it, I think more importantly, it's giving people the sense that, you know what, I can let some of these uh, issues play themselves out. Uh, I might be giving up a little either way, but you know what, uh, I'll let this play out. I'll keep my cash at 240 and I'll, 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 as I said, I'll live to fight another day. So you've been throwing around that 240 a lot, which we know <laughs> is the yield on the 10-year bond. And right. there has been a lot of talk recently about one tool that China could use, which is to stop buying treasuries. And that could be a good way for them to sort of retaliate against us. How do you view that? How do you manage that? Well, I mean, that is the what we've been calling in the markets the nuclear option. Uh, it's been in the markets for a year or two now. Uh, obviously, China, a big holder of U.S. Treasuries, so you would think that you know it, they'd have some leverage over the U.S. government and Treasury in particular. And it seems to come up every time you know, we have some volatility between the two trading partners, which has been the case. Uh, I, I do agree with probably the vast majority of the market that it would be um, not in China's best interest to dump those uh, treasuries into the market. It would only be hurting their entire portfolio. But do remember, uh, there was something that was called the temper tantrum just a few years back mm-hmm. when the Treasury decided uh, or the Fed decided that they were not going to continue to buy, and the markets really got volatile again. So all the tre- all the China really has to do is kind of dangle that that carrot out there that they're not going to buy or they're not going to, uh, you know, re- replace their maturities, and that might have a similar effect. And so, Henley, talk to us about the Fed and, and where they sit now. We had an interview. I'm not sure whether you heard it. Our own Kathleen Hayes was over in Zurich interviewing Fed President John Williams. Obviously, the, the Fed leaving a lot of options open for the balance of 2019. Fascinating to watch given where we were six months ago, four months ago, even with a, with a pretty clear path uh, for interest rates. How does that play into your thinking with all of that uncertainty going through the rest of the year? Well, I, you know, I don't think you have to fight the Fed here. Take them for their word. They are data dependent. They're going to let things play out. We did see a strong employment number or payroll numbers just a few weeks back. So they yeah. might be putting themselves into a little bit of a box. You have seen uh, market interest rates on the short end start to drop, money market funds drop. Uh, interestingly, though, bank deposit rates have been moving up and very strong. So there's been a little bit of a divergence there. So uh, de- demand on the deposit level uh, continues to be strong. So, yeah, I, I don't think you have to fight the Fed here. Uh, the, they are building the case for an easing uh, uh, later on this year. I think if you look at the numbers, the, the sediment is well over 70 percent that the next move will be an ease by the Federal Reserve. Uh, but uh, I follow some other Fed presidents and other governors, and I think they're keeping the case, you know, keeping their options open at this point. And this is not a Fed president, but arguably the voice on the twin deficits, and that's Douglas Holtz-Eaton, uh, who we spoke with yesterday here on this program, and talks a lot about the trade imbalance, the budget imbalance. How are the markets reacting to the budget imbalance as you take a look at that? 
How concerning is that to you? Well, I think it is concerning because, uh, you know, again, we've had the Fed step away from their purchasing of treasuries. Now you have deficit spending. They're going to have to the, – the Treasury has to fund themselves some way. They've been doing it in the short end of the curve. I think that's probably the technical reason why you've seen the curve invert from three months to ten years. Um, and, you know, we'll see if it ultimately inverts from two years to ten years. But, again, there's a lot of technical things going on. So I think, you know, again, you could see some uh, uh, trend pressure on short-term rates because there has to be some issuance. And, again, remember, we're moving into a presidential year. Mm. And what does, how does that factor in, just about 45 seconds to go, how does a presidential election figure into this and sort of the broader domestic political scene? Well, my guess is that they're going to do everything they can to make as, ever, as many people happy as they can by continue spending and doing those types of things. Uh, my concern would be 2021 when the election's over. If we, uh, you know, that's where, uh, you know, I think I would keep my eye in terms of any potential recession uh, risks at this point. Henley Smith is Senior Relationship Manager at Stonecastle Cash Management. Taylor, always interesting to get that view of the market. And, you know, because as you said toward the top of the show, I think with Joe and Dave, we spend a lot of time talking about equities. You spend a little more time than I do thinking about the bond market because you're so smart. I get uh-huh. it. I get uh-huh. it. Well, uh, no, but in really all seriousness, this Jason, this actually is an asset class that might finally start to get some attention right. because like he said, for the first time since QE started, you're actually getting a product that uh, offers some yield over, over inflation. That's not a money loser. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.